And so I thought maybe I should take a look here and see if this notion about secret conspiracy, you know, secret societies running the world is as implausible as I think it is, or maybe there's something to it. And it turns out there is something to it. And I, I think that's fascinating. So I'll start there. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up Conspiracy Podcast. And joining me today are my fellow co-hosts, Dr. Lee Kunla. Hey, yeah. And Dr. Elena Papianis. Hello. It is November of 2020, and we are currently in the midst of two pandemics. One's biological and threatens the lungs, and the other is virtual and threatens the mind. The biological pandemic is caused by, of course, the spread of the 2019 coronavirus through the air. And the virtual virus is caused by the spread of inaccurate conspiracy claims through social media. These two pandemics are related. Each contributes to the spread of the other. The uncertainty, anomie, isolation, and fear caused by COVID-19 and by the official response to the disease has left people in a state in which they are more likely to come across and internalize conspiracy claims. And the spread of inaccurate conspiracy claims in turn makes it more likely to people to refuse to believe medical authorities and to resist official protocols for social distancing and mask wearing. I mean, it's amazing. It's like a, it's like a perfect storm, uh, the way these two pandemics interact with each other. Nathan, weren't you saying that you knew somebody, you would talk to somebody who was infected by one of these viruses and then by the other one later? Yeah, and I'm relieved, I'm extremely relieved to say that so far, it seems like he is recovering from the biological virus which is a relief. Yeah, because I interviewed a guy a few months ago, for those people who don't know, and he was refusing to wear a mask because he was arguing that COVID-19 was a hoax engineered by the government in order to control the population and distract us from the actions of the deep state. Um, and then a couple of weeks ago, I had heard that he was bedridden, that he was struggling to breathe. He didn't have the ability to smell or taste. He was refusing to seek medical attention. And at that time, it was it was horrifying for me to think about that this guy, good guy, smart guy, but he had been infected with this idea virus, which then led him to behave in a way that made it more likely for him to be infected with the biological virus, which is what happened. Now he has, or he is recovering from the biological one. The question will be, will he also recover from the, from the information virus? And that's what we're talking with today. Uh, we're going to be talking about a really, a really virulent virus in particular, because we're going to be discussing the QAnon conspiracy movement. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the key claims associated with that movement. We're going to look at the historical precursors of the theory, and then we're going to assess some of the main claims uh, and explore the implications and possible consequences of it. So how should we begin? I guess, I mean, most people know what QAnon is, but for those people who don't, Maybe it's uh, helpful if we had a bit of a refresher as far as a bit of their history and some of their main claims. So let's go into some of their claims. So as you're saying, Nathan, about your friend infected by both a biological virus and this ideological virus, essentially. And so QAnon really is part of this larger belief system that we see taking hold in a lot of people such as this, this man today. And so QAnon is a belief system in which an elite cabal of satanic child predators, there's even theories that they may or may not, may or may not also be cannibals, um, but that they run the world. It's this elite group. It uh, consists of A-listers in Hollywood and celebrities, 
religious leaders, philanthropists, politicians, wealthy business people. Now, there was a, an earlier version of QAnon uh, during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Do you guys remember Pizzagate? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Pizzagate was kind of like the, the original virus that, that then mutated into the larger landscape that we see today. So Pizzagate was the theory that Hillary Clinton and other top Democrats were part of an underground, satanic, child sex trafficking ring run out of a pizzeria in, in Washington, D.C. So this theory developed in November 2016 when Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta, he had his emails hacked. Remember that big scandal? The messages were published by WikiLeaks. And one of the emails uh, was just very mundane seemingly. It was just between the owner of the pizzeria and John Podesta, and they were discussing maybe running a fundraiser for Clinton at his pizzeria. So seemingly very mundane email between the two of them, but it uh, caused a lot of speculation on the, the website 4chan because users there started to speculate about the links between this pizzeria and the Democratic Party. And they started to essentially find coded codes in there. So for example, if it said cheese pizza or CP, they believe that it stood for something more nefarious like child pornography or sauce stood for something like sex. So they were finding all these coded messages in seemingly mundane, in seemingly mundane pizza word, pizza shop words, essentially. I mean, that seems like a bit of a stretch to me. Oh, absolutely. Pizza, CP, (laughs) child pornography. I mean, I mean it's CP could stand for anything, basically. For anything. It seems like a really good example of confirmation bias, really, where people are, like, they have the theory to begin with, and then they're looking for ways to link the two things. Um, so they find yeah. something, you know? I, I always go about this, I feel like, the long way around. But if you know anything about coding, I mean, in terms of, sorry, not computer coding, but, like, turning messages secret codes, turning messages into codes, the name of the game is not to have anything be uh, related to the terms that you are trying to hide. Right, right? that's a great so point, yeah. It would be terrible to call your, I don't, yeah, I mean, if, if this is what was actually happening, to have these really ridiculously obvious codes. Um, anybody, usually, I mean, the way coding like creating secret codes works is that the person on the other end has some kind of a key that will unlock Mm -hmm. it. That cheese pizza equals uh, child pornography seems to me like the way pot dealers used to do business in the mid eighties, you know, where you're like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, call me about coffee, you know, and I'll bring over a quote unquote cup of coffee. But even there, coffee is not, you know, pot. I mean, I guess coffee, cannabis, you know, but the point is you wouldn't, you shouldn't be able to break the code. Yeah, that's um, a really good point. Um, so this is how, that's how Pizzagate was born and it's spread widely online. As we know, a lot of these theories do. This is the home and demise. Well, not even demise. It's the spread of many of them. Um, so members of the alt-right, conservative journalists and um, others who were sort of up 
up in a rage about these Clinton emails. Uh, they spread the conspiracy theory on social media, like 4chan, 8chan, Twitter. And it really spread their Twitter bots as well around the globe that were spreading Pizzagate and making it seem like it was this really huge thing and that there were lots of Pizzagaters out there when in actuality there probably weren't all that many. And then Pizzagate reemerged in 2017 um, after a relatively obscure statement made by Trump in October 2017. Lee, did you want to say something there? Well, I just wanted to, um, for those people who hadn't followed Pizzagate to the end, to its conclusion, I just wanted to, to wind mm. that story up if you weren't going to get there, Elena, which is that it ends with a guy uh, who actually goes into the uh, pizzeria with a loaded gun in order to save the children that are supposed to be held hostage in the basement. Now, it was de-escalated in part because the employees there showed him that there was no basement. There wasn't even a basement associated with this place. And I, I, this got to be my favorite quote of 2020, um, he, you know, so he gets arrested, he gets uh, eventually sentenced. And at some point along the way, he says, quote, the intel on this wasn't the best. I mean, he's uh, right. He's I, not wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what that, that is my quote for 2020. Makes that guy such a sympathetic figure. Because if you think about it, again, he gets infected with this idea that, oh, there's children in the basement of this pizza place. And if we thought, that there were children being held in the basement of a pizza place, we would try to go rescue those children. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's what he tried to do. He thought he was doing something. And I mean, it's also easier to be sympathetic towards him because he didn't hurt anybody. True. That could have gone so badly mm -hmm. because he was heavily armed and he was like ready to go. So that could have gone very badly. Luckily, nobody got hurt. Yeah. So thank you for adding that, Lee. That's, a, that's an important um, conclusion to that. And, but then it reemerged in 2017 um, after Trump made um, an obscure statement at one of his, um, well, it wasn't even a press conference, but he called the press. And so this reemerged as what we now know closer to today as QAnon. So Trump was having a dinner with these military leaders and their wives, and he called the press back, even though they had sort of left for the day. And they were all taking a photo together and he gestured to the military officials and he said, uh, you guys know what this represents. Maybe it's the calm before the storm, could be the calm, the calm before the storm. Now the reporters were trying to get details, obviously, as they often try to do from Trump with to no avail, but they were asking, you know, what do you mean by the storm? Can you get into more details? What do you, what do you mean? And his only response was, you'll find out. Now tensions were high between the US and a few different um, international, well, other countries essentially, North Korea and Iran. There were high tensions between both of those uh, nations at the time. North Korea had conducted a series of missile and nuclear tests that was really took the US intelligence community by surprise because they didn't think that they were that far along in their technology. And um, Iran had, uh, had a missile test recently as well and Trump even I think a month after this gave a speech basically threatening what he called maximum pressure, a maximum pressure campaign against Iran, because that might be economic, but might even be military if, if needed to try and prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon of their own. So there was a very good chance Trump was talking about one of those two things, or Trump could have just been kind of using that press moment as kind of what he would for a reality television show where he's just 
you know, um, wanting some cliffhanger. Uh, yeah, a little cliffhanger. You know, wait around I mean, for this the is next a season episode. finale. You gotta like exactly you gotta you wanting gotta, more. You gotta keep tuning in. So later that month, someone calling themselves QAnon or Q, sorry, began posting a series of cryptic messages in a 4chan thread that was called "quote Calm Before the Storm," which obviously references Trump's quote. Should, should I mention what 4chan is? Do you think maybe people don't know? Yeah, I, I think that 4chan doesn't quite have the visibility of some of the other social media platforms. It's probably useful if we spend a little bit of time discussing what 4chan is, because it's so crucial to this theory. Right. So it began in 2003 as more of an image board where fans of Japanese anime could discuss cartoons and they could post images. And uh, it's known as kind of a meme incubator. 4chan itself isn't something that I could have just dipped into. It's not user-friendly for just kind of a casual internet user. But some of the memes that were born there would often make their way out into more accessible and well-trafficked platforms that we might know. So, for example, Lolcats was born there. Lolcats I can has cheeseburger. Yeah, exactly. I can has cheeseburger. And so that's luckily still innocent. But the now alt-right symbol Pepe the Frog was also born there. And as we know, that was very much, its original intent was very much twisted and, and adopted by the alt-right over time. So this kind of migration happened with QAnon too, from 4chan to more trafficked and more familiar and accessible uh, internet spaces. And what's interesting, I think, about 4chan is that it's a lot of young, it's mostly young people. And uh, I mean, outside of things like the original posts around anime, when 4chan gets political, it tends to get political in a very right-wing way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's pretty interesting and unique in the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years that you have a right a politically right-wing youth culture normally the youth culture is more progressive than the mainstream right. and here you are seeing maybe for the i don't know, I won't say for the first time but maybe for the first time in a long time certainly in the west you're seeing a, a youth culture that's that's significantly more politically to the right of the mainstream mm -hmm. now i'm not saying this is all of youth culture yeah. No, and not at all. But but certainly it seemed as though the 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 kinds of people who were really into 4chan posting there and the people who became famous and their ideas are decidedly right wing, but from a young perspective. Mm -hmm. So Q claimed to be a high level government insider with Q clearance at the energy energy department, which is apparently the highest level of security authorization you can get. And his or her self-proclaimed job was to post crumbs of intelligence to 4chan. Uh, they said they claimed in order to covertly inform the public about Trump's master plan. Now, according to Q, Trump was staging a counter coup against this deep state from within the White House with his secret plan to deliver what he called the storm or the great awakening. So, Q and, Q and QAnon proponents claim that this is really Trump's job, this is his goal. He wants to bring justice against this elite cabal who is running both the sex trafficking ring and now even the world more generally. Um, because we've really seen this theory and this belief system grow to envelop more 
uh, more and more theories, more and more people. Now it's seemingly this coordinated global effort to control almost every aspect of our lives from banks to media and even to vaccines, which we've seen um, come into the conversation a lot more because of COVID and the, the real race for a vaccine for that as well. So, Well, I mean, and this is where we have to discuss the fact that these two pandemics do have a relationship with each other. Because, sure. I mean, in March, the lockdown started in March of 2020. And also it was in March of 2020 that QAnon content on Facebook and Twitter just like skyrocketed at an exponential rate. I think on, on Facebook, it was something like it went up by 600% just in March of 2020. And I think it, it isn't making a false causal claim here to say that that was probably influenced very heavily by the lockdown measures that were being taken. For sure. Absolutely. And um, well, this idea of sort of increased spread. So not only have searches increased since then, but when we think back to the time when these, when QAnon and these theories first came out um, in 2017, the algorithms for the internet for some of these like YouTube and Facebook was different than what it is today. So there were these content push algorithms that helped to spread this QAnon content to new audiences. Now it's since been fixed or at least somewhat corrected as far as I know, but at the time someone could maybe start by looking up something relatively innocent um, and then get, yeah, the moon landing, something that there might, you know, that there could be a conspiracy around, um, but then they get pushed to increasingly extreme content. So you know how you watch a video and then it kind of suggests the next video? Mm-hmm. Those would get increasingly more extreme as a person would watch. So they might start somewhere with a moon landing and then end up with like, you know, a uh, pandemic or some sort of, you know, 5G fears, lizard people, anything, you know, uh, or, you know, deep into something QAnon related. Mm-hmm. So this was very much facilitating this kind of rabbit hole that uh, more and more people were finding themselves going down. Now, the actual Q drops themselves, they're, they're like little riddles, aren't they? They're not explanations of this is what's going on and this is what's going to happen. Instead, it's sort of written in kind of coded language and there's hints and there's mm-hmm. sort of little wordplay and things like that. And there's like code names for different people. For example, uh, Obama's code name is, is, is Hussein. Right which sort of gives you an idea of what the subtext of this conspiracy theory might actually be. Mm-hmm. So QAnon gained popularity on mainstream social media pa- platforms. And then the mainstream mass media also started to pick up on it and started to report on it and even uh, find and look for Q content in like political rallies and events as well, like signs or hats um, that would allude to QAnon. It's also mutated to, to touch upon real life conspiracies. So Jeffrey Epstein, for example, one of his accusers, Virginia Giuffray, she's tweeted a series of slogans and graphics related to QAnon, some of which are meant to like, for example, there's a hashtag save the children. It is a real hashtag that's, uh, or sorry, meant to raise awareness about human trafficking. Um, which is a real problem, but it's, but QAnon has sort of adopted this as well. And they've co-opted another one called hashtag the great awakening worldwide. And so again, there's this kind of blending going on between actual, you know, things that we have evidence for that they are real problems in this world um, compared to this QAnon with these kind of indistinct crumbs that he's dropping that people are finding messages in. Okay. 
So the pandemic has also accelerated the mutation of the QAnon theory. As you've mentioned, Nathan, a lot of the uh, searches for QAnon content has gone up as lockdown measures have been imposed through, like around the globe. And QAnon has blamed these events also on these global elites, while at the same time increasing distrust in the media, in the government, in uh, international organizations like the WHO, who Trump as well has criticized uh, openly. And so we see this kind of this combination happening of, of COVID-19 denial, hes- uh, hesitation over vaccines and other far right theories, uh, including QAnon. And they're spreading, as I, as I mentioned, uh, especially to European countries. And Germany is included in this list. And I found this, this article that shocked, but also didn't shock me, but uh, was obviously disappointing. Uh, on April 20th of this year, which is Hitler's birthday, there was a small rally organized in, um, Lee, how do I say this, country, this city? It's, it's C-H-E-M-N-I-T-Z. Chemnitz. Chemnitz. So in Chemnitz, Germany, and the attendees were expressing anti-lockdown sentiment, anti-immigrant messages, distrust of the state. But um, there was also a man visible wearing a mask with the red letter Q, which is a symbol, obviously, of QAnon that you'd more likely see at something like a Trump rally in the United States. And he also um, was chanting, we are the people, essentially, in Germany. I don't want to attempt, even though it's not that as hard as some of those uh, other German words um, you've helped us with in the past. Um, But it's a slogan of racist nationalists in Germany as well. So we really see this frightening uh, spread that's, again, kind of sucking in all these increasingly problematic messaging. And it's, it's not contained to just North America. Now, it's not the first time we've seen these kind of conditions come together. And I think Lee is going to give us um, some of the history uh, that is going to help us understand this even better. I don't know. I, I try like before, and I, I hope that I've done this previously on the podcast. I try and find some kind of rationale. Uh, mm. Why would somebody think anything that we've talked about when, when we as a group have decided it's not plausible? Why would anybody still think it's plausible? Um, that's often a guiding question for me. And another one that I like to ask myself is, is what's happening actually new? Like when, when we see something that's happening that seems very new, we, we've never heard of QAnon until quite recently. I mean, if we go back historically, what, 2017 is when this stuff first gets mentioned. Is this actually a new phenomenon or is this a development of something else that we've seen before? And so I want to touch on both of those aspects to the QAnon phenomenon. Because, you know, when you say, Elena, there's the, the, the QAnon theory asserts that there is a cabal of Satan-worshipping, cannibalistic, pedophile elites who are yeah. running the world, and Donald Trump is in some kind of good versus evil Manichaean battle against some secret deep state. He's going to arrest everybody. And, you know, it's really remarkable that anybody would believe anything like that. Yeah. It's remarkable that somebody would have trouble believing in the efficacy of vaccines, but there, that's like one claim. And, you know, it can get, it can get complicated and muddy and okay, fine. But when it's this all-consuming, weird world philosophy, I get really intrigued uh, about 
why anybody would believe anything like this. So I, I wanted to sort of look, is there, is there precedent for this kind of stuff in history? And yes, indeed there is. Um, and I think that's, that's really compelling. And then, uh, so there is both precedent for a conspiracy like this, but there's also precedent for this kind of stuff actually being, okay, <laughs> not the Satan worshiping cannibal part, but that there's like an elite group who's running the world. There's some plausibility to that. And I want to come back to that. And there's, there, are some, there are some really dark stuff, I think, that, that is behind the history here that I wanted to sort of flesh out as well. And while I was doing some research, so what I thought I'd do is in my research, I, I thought I'd just look at the history of secret societies. Because one of the main claims is, despite what kind of secret society there is, a very general claim, which I think is very appealing, is that, look, there's a secret society, they're running the show, whatever the mainstream discourse is, they either are complicit or they're, they don't know that they're not actually articulating what's really happening or where power really is located. And so I thought, let's just take a look at the secret society thing. And what I discovered for me was utterly fascinating because I, I went through a similar Sorry, this is for the longtime listeners out there. I went through a similar experience in doing the research here that I did with Bigfoot and to some extent with aliens. That Bigfoot and, and Nathan episode is now vigorously me. shaking. Yeah, it did <laughs> change me. It really Fundamentally, did he is yeah. a different person after studying Bigfoot. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope because, be, I, and I, what I was going to say is I hope a better person in a way because it just... I still, as I said in the episode, I still don't actually believe in Bigfoot, but what I was confronted with was a lot of prejudices that I brought to the question. And I was shocked at how those prejudices were not necessarily well thought through. They just seemed plausible, but they weren't good premises on which to start an investigation. I think our and prejudices so coming... always seem plausible to us, as ridiculous as our prejudices right. are. That's one of the things about them. It makes them so insidious. When you have them, they always seem like common sense. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I thought maybe I should take a look here and see if this notion about secret conspiracy, you know, secret societies running the world is as implausible as I think it is, or maybe there's something to it. And it turns out there is something to it. And I, I think that's fascinating. So I'll start there. So I want to talk about this very broad claim that the QAnon, that I guess Q makes, uh, or that the QAnon followers interpret that there's the secret society out there. So here's a little anecdote that I came across and it comes from the French revolution. And so the king at that time was King Louis XVI. And I'm sure everybody knows that he was decapitated. So he's decapitated by guillotine in the winter of 1793. What's interesting is that supposedly maybe it's not clear if this, is, if this actually happened or if this is one of those things that historians later put in. But apparently, somebody, as the king's head is chopped off, somebody in the crowd shouts, Jacques Delamay, you have been avenged. So, you know, who's Jacques Delamay? So 400 years before 1793, uh, roughly. It was 1301 or seven. Okay, should have looked it up. But it was roughly 400 years before King Louis is decapitated. There's a guy named Jacques de Lamay, and he is the head of a secret society called the Knights Templar. And he was killed by the then French king, who was Philip the Fair. 
I had to look that one up. When he is killed, that is Jacques de Lamay is killed. Anybody who knows about the secret society he was the head of, which is the Knights Templar, it's just like the Knights Templar disappear. And so that's it. You know, for most observers, there's a little secret society and then the leader and actually everybody else is rounded up and arrested and killed. And then that secret society disappears. But with that quote, what I think is really compelling is that you see how this story can develop that, oh, maybe it didn't disappear. I mean, you know, the thing about secret societies is that they're kind of secret. And so maybe Jacques Delamay had, had secretly designated a successor. And, and this person, because they supposedly had a lot of money, the uh, Knights Templars, like a lot, a lot of money. And, you know, maybe this successor was able to continue this organization underground. And hey, maybe they were actually in some way involved in bringing down the uh, French king during the French Revolution. So the fantasy, the theory here is that there's like a 400-year long game that the Knights Templars are playing behind the scenes. And I found this anecdote really interesting for a couple of reasons. One is what you see historically when things, when big things happen. And I think today too, you can see it. When any big thing that happens, there is a conspiracy that goes along with it. And that's not new. Like this is also in the French Revolution. It's like, you know, maybe the peasants and the city, the, the working poor in the French cities got up and organized themselves or just got mad and started, you know, rebelling, or maybe it was this planned event. So I thought that just the, that fact was really interesting. But it, I, I think it shows that also that there's this fear that there are secret societies out there. It's kind of an old fear that's, I think I'm going to show this in a moment. I think this has been with us for a very long time. I, I thought I'd take a look then just to kind of define what a secret society is. And I came across the work of a guy named Professor Richard Spence. And I have to give the, you the full name and title because I, for the definition, I'm, I'm relying on his work. Uh, he's a professor uh, from the University of Idaho's history department. And he does work on what he calls, quote, the real history of secret societies, unquote. And he gives this really interesting definition of what secret societies actually are. The first of them, and this blew my mind, I got to admit, the first part of his definition of secret societies is that secret societies aren't secret. So, and once I mentioned that, it's like, yeah, I know about all these secret societies. I mean, real or non-existent, you know, from the Freemasons to the Illuminati, to the lizard people, to QAnon, Mm-hmm. We know about them. I mean, Bohemian Grove. Apparently, yeah, exactly. And I mean, yeah, exactly. So, Skull and Bones Society—they're—they're they're out there. The Masons even bother to advertise. They'll tell you in in a town that they're in. There's a Masonic lodge. So actually, it might be better to think about this stuff as societies with secrets, as opposed to societies that nobody knows anything about. Now, I guess just to be super cautious and careful, we have to hold out the possibility that there is a really, really secret society. It's just (laughs) good and we don't know anything about them. But in terms of like, you know, the ones that we generally identify, Knights Templar, Freemasons, whatever, whatever, 
they go through the bother of advertising uh, that they exist. The thing that kind of makes secret societies more secret is that they have selective recruitment and selective membership. Not everybody can join. And I think that is already something where it's like, huh, I wonder, you know, anytime, I mean, I remember this as a kid, if there was a club and you weren't part of it, it seemed a lot cooler than when you got to be part of the club and you realize, oh, we're just sitting in this guy's treehouse eating Smarties. But when I wasn't part of the club, I thought they're probably inventing like jetpacks and flying around having a great time. So it depends if you're in and out of the secret society. So lastly, secret societies offer the promise of specialized status or knowledge, which is what Q does and which is what the Illuminati supposedly do. And, you know, but what's interesting is if you take this three-pronged definition that Professor Spence provides, is that there are secret societies everywhere and we know all about them. The CIA is a secret society, right? I mean, we know they exist. They don't really tell us what they do. They're pretty selective about their recruitment. And if you join them, you get, you know, secret knowledge about stuff that's going on. And I guess to some extent status, depending on what, you know, subculture you're a part of, if that's recognized. Certainly you get status within that group. The mafia is a secret society. College fraternities are secret societies. This then makes me reflect back on Q's first claim, which is that there's a secret society out there and they're, you know, they're controlling some stuff. If we just end it there, and I'm, I'm curious about this from just the, the question of plausibility. And they're like, why would something like this seem plausible to somebody that there's a secret society who is maybe, you know, has more of the decision-making power than the elected government might. Well, that's not that outrageous. I mean, I know that this is not what Q claims in, in its entirety or the QAnon phenomena is not in, in its entirety about this. Maybe this isn't even the central part of it, but I think it's a compelling part that makes people interested because yeah, the CIA is a secret society and they actually do have a lot of power and they actually do run a lot of the government. And so if you think especially about the fact that a secret society is a society with secrets. Most governmental departments have a lot of secrets. They're not transparent about what they do. So even though you have a, you have a democracy in the sense that you get to choose you know, the elected representatives, we all know that a lot of the decisions are made in places where we don't have access to the decision-making process that went down, even if we elect those people. Or it's even worse. It's like stuff like the CIA where they're doing things that we don't even know about. And if we did know about it, we might not agree with what they were doing. In my research, kind of, again, shocked that actually I could see why this seems like a compelling thesis <clears throat> to start with. Excuse me. I could tell why this would hit home because it's, yeah, like it doesn't matter who you elect. It seems like the problems that are in front of our doorsteps don't really get solved. A lot of them get worse, no matter what the politicians say. It's that we know this kind of resentment. I mean, well, then okay. after the Epstein thing happened, it turned out that there were actually secret islands where there were like there was human trafficking happening. And a lot of these sort of rich elite people were traveling to these islands. I mean, that seems yeah. so cartoonishly super villain style, but we know <laughs> that that was actually taking place. Yet Q does not claim this for its narrative because Trump is one of those elite people who was attending these parties as well. Makes it a bit awkward. Yeah. 
if you want to have a really terrible day, you should Google something called rich kids of Instagram. And it's the children of billionaires and what they get up to during the day. And it's just, it's just like, oh, great. Like here I am working away, toiling at a job. And I, you know, might make, if I'm lucky, a couple of hundred bucks, right? And then these kids, they do something, sorry, there's a bit of a tangent on Secret Society. Kids, they, they do something called dunking. Have you ever heard of this, dunking? Mm-hmm. It's when you take an extremely expensive bottle of champagne, big one, you know? You open it and then you pour it down the toilet. No. Friends take pictures of you. You know, because when your dad's a billionaire or your mom's a billionaire, it doesn't matter. Wow. Right? I mean, I mean, that's, that's it's the like reason lighting the a cigar with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, oh That's um, why people enjoyed the fire Festival so much, because it seemed yeah. like that was the, the elite, the sort of that, that class getting their comeuppance. Totally. Yeah. So this is not, nothing that I'm saying, even if you don't know about the rich kids of Instagram, nothing that we have been talking about is lost on anybody. Right. I mean, everybody knows that that there are worlds that are apart from the ones that we're living. Some of them are horrendous, you know, prison camps in North Korea. And some of them are really frustratingly amazing, like, you know, the islands that are super rich. Exactly. Okay. What's interesting, though, and, and really disturbing for me about the QAnon phenomenon is when you dig a little below the surface, right? So when you go beyond just there exists a secret society and they have power and they actually probably are running some things that should be within the purview of democracy, but isn't. And you can take that quite far, I think, uh, that, that line of argument. What becomes interesting and really scary is, is uh, Elena, as you noted, that second part when we describe this cabal, who are they? Yes, they're financially elites, but they're pedophiles, they're Satanists, they're... Cannibals, wait, What was it? Pedophile. Thank you. And yeah. they're cannibals. You can't forget that one. Who, if you dig a bit further, exactly who are these elites um, beyond, you know, Satan-worshipping pedophiles who may be cannibals? It's not all elites. As Elena said, Donald Trump doesn't come in for fire. Uh, it's a specific type of elite. George Soros gets mentioned, the Rothschilds get mentioned. Apparently they control or own all the media. They're part of the entertainment business. Go a bit further back, they're bankers. The problem here is, and it's not entirely obvious necessarily because it's not stated as an anti-Semitic claim, but it's an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Like it's, it's clearly... It clearly rings the note that if you are steeped in anti-Semitic discourse, you can hear this. You can hear what is being said here. And there is historical precedent for this as well. And, and, and this is where things get really um, sad and dark. Uh, because while I found learning about the history, real and imagined, of secret societies compelling and fun and interesting, there's, an, there's this text that we brought up before on the podcast that seems to, seems to have been published in 1903 in Russia. And it's called uh, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now, 
what's interesting about this text is, well, first of all, as we've said already on the podcast, but I'm going to say very clearly again, is this is not a true, it, it purports to be an account of an elite cabal of Jews. It's a work of an, a complete and utter fiction. Potentially it was even plagiarized, but certainly it was never what it claimed to be, which is a historical record of something that happened. Instead, it's a foundational text for really virulent anti-Semitism. It's sort of, anti-Semitism has existed, especially in Europe for, for a very long time. You can trace it easily back into the Middle Ages. But this text in the early part of the 20th century weaponizes anti-Semitism uh, in a really horrendous way. The text becomes a foundational text for the Nazi party, which probably is already enough. You could just stop there um, with how awful the text is. But basically, what's interesting about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is that it purports to be an accurate transcription of a cabal of elite Jews who are planning to take over the world. Now, if what's, what's, what's especially interesting then is that if the text goes further to claim that the way they're going to do it is by utilizing already existing secret societies like the Freemasons. And in this text, then, we get the kind of template for what I see as a lot of the types of, there's a secret group out there who are controlling the world and they're doing it for evil ends. That template of conspiracies after the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is published seem to, you, seem to always follow that same trajectory. If, if they're mentioned or not as Jews, the description of that elite group is the way that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion describe the elite group. And in there you get pedophilia. In there you get Satan worshiping. They are bankers. They are, control the entertainment industry, et cetera, et cetera. All these tropes are listed there. Now, they're not necessarily invented there. Again, this goes back to a long and sad history of European anti-Semitism. But it's sort of codified there in a way that for me, when I listen to Q and especially the QAnon movement and their followers, I'm like, this is eerily familiar. Well, even um, the cannibalism goes back to anti-Semitic tropes from the medieval ages in Europe. Yeah, and uh, the, exactly, the cannibalism and the pedophilia both have their roots in this blood libel uh, stuff where there was a notion, as, as, as Nathan said, that Jews who existed in Europe potentially secretly, actually, let me go one step further back, just in terms of where these anti-Semitic tropes often come from. There was a lot of ideological rigidity in the European Middle Ages, and then also later into the early modern period. And Jews were seen, uh, depending on which government and which time, were seen as a problem because they weren't Christian. And you have movements then in different places, to some extent known as pogroms, and, uh, but they weren't always that, which attempted to either forcibly convert Jews, and if they didn't convert, then expel them. Now, a lot of Jews did convert, but the worry arose. What if they didn't really convert? What if they just pretended to convert and they remained secretly Jewish and are now building this kind of secret society of Jews underground that nobody knows about, right? 
So already here is like this worry of, now again, I say this very much with quotes, thinking about it from a racist medieval perspective, but the Jew in our midst, you know, what if, what if, the, what if there's this subsection of Christians who actually are Jews, and then they're doing all these things to undermine our community. One of the worries was that they were abducting children and using their blood for things like keeping them young or giving them power or communing with Satan or all of this. So these tropes were kind of summarized and um, heightened and merged with a notion of a secret society And over and over again in Europe, in the 20th century, you have this fear of this group within that's undermining us. So that was a bit the kind of historical background to Q that I wanted to supplement with Elena, who starts in 2017 and rightly says, I think, this is brand new. It is in 2017 a brand new movement, but it's one that I find has a lot of resonance and picks up a lot of themes, a general theme about the fear of secret societies that we see in the French Revolution, the actual recognition that many of us have that actually a lot of real power resides in places where we don't know what's going on. And then this kind of template of a fear of secret societies merged with a virulent European anti-Semitism that is the template for these uh, worries about secret societies, especially QAnon. So something that I think uh, we should make very clear is that those tropes that Lee was talking about, there was never any evidence for them. Like these were things that were, these were beliefs, but they were never beliefs that were backed up by any kind of evidence. Sorry, I should have said that, although talking about Jews abducting children and, you know, draining their blood to live longer. I just, I should have mentioned that that, there was no evidence for that. But there was no evidence for that, just (laughs) to be clear. There was no evidence. This is a danger, I think, when you're describing uh, beliefs that seem so outlandish. Sometimes it doesn't seem necessary to say, and there was never any evidence for it. But I feel like these days, we should always sort of cap it off with, and there was no evidence for it, just in case, okay. just to be on the safe side. Because, I mean, because the thing about QAnon, it's not just a conspiracy claim. It's not like the claim that the moon landing was faked or that JFK was killed by the CIA. Instead, QAnon is more of a totalist worldview. It, it claims to explain everything that happens on the world stage. And as Elena mentioned, it can sort of encompass any other conspiracy claim within it, as long as that conspiracy claim attacks conventionally held beliefs or mainstream expertise. And as Lee pointed out, this idea of having some kind of totalist worldview explanation of things is not new. And it has also caused some tremendous troubles in humanity's past. And the thing that makes them more difficult to attack or to criticize is that a conspiracy claim can be refuted with evidence. But a totalist worldview is one that provides its own self-defense mechanisms that promote cognitive dissonance in its adherence in order to prevent attrition of its numbers. Like any system that traffics in paranoia, the QAnon worldview has a built-in device to to deflect criticism in that any critic of QAnon can be labeled as a deep state plant, which in the case of QAnon has the added benefit of tarring that critic as a satanic cannibal child predator. Any mainstream media criticism can easily be dismissed as the work of an elite pornographic empire trying to protect itself by spinning a web of lies. 
Now, this isn't the only self-defense device built into QAnon. In his book, Thought Reform and the, and the Psychology of Totalism, Dr. Robert Lifton coined the term thought terminating cliche. It's a deflection method employed within totalist belief systems to prevent the absurdities and inconsistencies of that system from becoming apparent. In the case of QAnon, that cliche is trust, trust the, the plan. plan. Regardless of how many predictions don't pan out, regardless that Robert Mueller didn't reveal that he and Trump had been secretly working together the whole time, regardless that JFK Jr. did not show up at a Trump rally on July 4th, 2019, as was predicted by many followers of Q, regardless that John Podesta and Hillary Clinton have not been arrested and executed, regardless that QAnon requires you to believe that Donald Trump is locked in a Manichaean battle against child predators, despite decades worth of evidence that Trump has bragged about sexually assaulting minors by walking unannounced into the dressing room of a Miss Teen USA pageant. I mean, he, he's gone on wax as saying that he would like to date his own daughter if she wasn't related to him. He was filmed partying with Jeffrey Epstein in the 1990s and was on the flight logs of the Lolita Express as late as 1997. When Trump was asked about Epstein's fellow accused child abuser, Ghislaine Maxwell, after her arrest, he wished her well. I mean, you'd have to, like, like the Trump administration, according to QAnon mythos, has child protection as their raison d'etre, but they have caused the separation and, and incarceration of at least 400 and 545 children, some as young as six, from their parents at the U.S. border and now claims they can't reunite them. Alexander Acosta, the prosecutor who struck an extremely generous and light plea deal with Epstein, I would say a suspiciously light plea deal with Epstein in Florida in 2008, was then nominated by Trump to be the U.S. Secretary of Labor in 2017. According to the Attorney General's office, in Trump's first full year in power, the initiation of federal human trafficking prosecutions was lower than Obama's last year as president, and even lower in the following year. I mean, that is a lot of evidence that seems to go against the main claims of Q. I mean, the idea that, there, that child trafficking is a problem, that is true. The idea that human trafficking in general is a problem is true. As Lee points out, there are secret societies and they have gotten up to some nefarious things. But the specific claims of Q, that Donald Trump is some kind of savior who will rid the world of these things, there's an awful lot of evidence that that is not the case. So it takes a considerable amount of confirmation bias to tune out all of that counter evidence. And that's where a, a thought terminating cliche like trust, trust the, plan the plan is so useful because it's a confirmation bias amplifier. If 100 predictions are made and just one comes true, then that one hit seems like it isn't just the law of averages working itself out. It's proof of the validity of Q's claims. And the 99 misses can be safely ignored as just deliberate misinformation that was necessary to circulate in order for the larger plan to be successful. Trust, Trust the, plan. the plan. Because truly Q works in strange and mysterious ways. So to eliminate more about this process of sort of cult beliefs, Dr. Lifton outlined a few criteria describing cults that operate totalist belief systems. Amongst them are a control of information and communication, a demand for purity, a leader above criticism that has access to the ultimate truth, the manipulation of language and jargon to identify in-group members and to exclude out-group members. Now, each of these techniques has a similar effect on the subject to which they are directed. If you're in a cult, all of these, these tools are gonna have a very specific effect on you. 
if you're in a cult and these things are operating on you, you're going to become increasingly alienated from anybody who isn't in that cult. And you're going to become increasingly dependent on the leadership of the cult to interpret the meaning of all events and situations. It becomes a feedback loop. Increased immersion in the cult's beliefs causes increased friction and decreased involvement with groups that don't share that totalist belief system, which then increases alienation and separation, which then causes increased immersion in the cult. The cult strips the individual of their previous community and then provides another community to take its place. And at the heart of the cult is a guru, a kind of godlike figure. As Lifton wrote in 2019, as part of the imposed reality, the guru becomes the ultimate bastion against the evil of defilement, the central figure in the world purifying apocalyptic narrative. That narrative is considered the only certainty in an otherwise unknowable future. That is, the guru becomes the sacred agent of a divine plan for all-encompassing purification, end quote. And of course, in QAnon, that all-encompassing purification is the storm. And Q provides a sacred knowledge through which a chaotic and frightening world can make a perfect kind of sense. The, the key aspects are alienation and separation. And we are currently living in a time in which these two experiences are amongst the most common parts of the human condition. Uh, Lee, you mentioned the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in your portion. I'd like to return to it so we can have some idea of what the stakes are in all of this. In June of 1922, the German Minister for Foreign Affairs, a man named Walter Rattenau, left his home in Berlin to go to work. As his driver drove Rattenau along Konigsallee, another car pulled in front of them, blocking their path. Two men got out of that car. One shot Rattenau five times with a submachine gun, and the other one threw a hand grenade into the car, and obviously Rattenau was killed. The man who pulled the trigger on the submachine gun was killed by the Berlin police in a shootout. The man who pulled the pin on the grenade took his own life before he could be arrested. But the driver of the assassin's car was a 21-year-old man named Ernst Teckow, and he was arrested and stood trial. And at that trial, he testified that they murdered Ratnow because they believed that Ratnow was one of the elders of Zion, who was secretly manipulating the strings of world events behind the scenes. And to put a cap on this story, a decade later, after the fraudulent and totalist belief system espoused by the Protocols of the Elders of Zion took hold in the halls of German government, Hitler's Nazi party built a memorial to this event, not to Rattenau for being murdered, but to the three men who had murdered him, who were treated like heroes by the Nazis. And we've seen something similar in the last few years. Um, Edgar Madison Welch fired an assault rifle in a Washington, D.C. pizzeria, having been infected with the idea that there were children being held against their will in the basement, as we discussed. Matthew Wright drove a van full of ammunition and firearms to a large bridge spanning the Colorado River, where he got into a tense standoff with police. And in letters from prison, Wright claimed that he did this to force the government to expose the truth about secret inspector general reports that he had learned from QAnon drops. 24-year-old Anthony Camello murdered Francesco Cali, a local mob boss, and then testified in court that he did so because Cali was a secret member of the deep state and that President Trump supported Cali's murder. Jessica Prim drove from Illinois to New York City while live streaming to Facebook about how she was going to kill Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. And when she was arrested, she asked the officers, quote, have you heard about the kids, end quote. A Buckley wolf whose social media was littered with QAnon memes and slogans killed his own brother in Seattle with a sword, believing his brother to be a shape-shifting lizard. In Waco, Texas, Cynthia Fulbright crashed her car into another car and told police that she did so because the other car was filled with child predators who had kidnapped a child. The police said that Fulbright's claims, quote, did not match the timeline or any facts or evidence, end quote. 
but a former roommate of Fulbright said that Fulbright had recently become obsessed with QAnon and had started staying up for days, poring over the material she found on social media. Just a couple days ago from when we we're recording this, two men were arrested for planning violence outside of a polling station. And one of those men, it turned out, had all of these ties to QAnon again. In May of 2020, the FBI published a bulletin stating that conspiracy theory driven domestic extremists were a growing threat and could cause violence within the United States. But just as in Germany, it moved from terrorism to the halls of power. We have seen that in the last couple of weeks. In Georgia, a woman named Marjorie Taylor Greene posted support for QAnon theories, including a video in which she says, quote, there's a once in a lifetime opportunity to take out this global cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles. And I think we have the president to do it, referring to Trump and created memes in which she holds a rifle and threatens Democratic Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar. Now, Ms. Green ran unopposed in her district, and she won. She won her election. She's going to Congress. President Trump referred to her as a future Republican star, and he's, he's correct about that, because increasingly this totalist belief system of QAnon is working its way into the halls of the American government as well. Guys, I'm really scared. <laughs> I, know, I know Biden just won, but I'm really scared still. The election of Biden, it is not going to shut this conspiracy theory down. It's going yeah. to fire this conspiracy theory up, despite the fact that we never received our world purifying event, despite the fact that we never got the storm, that mm -hmm. we never had the situation where this evil cabal was hauled out of their homes and arrested and then tried and then executed. Like that did not occur. And now it, it's becoming increasingly unlikely as we're recording this, that President Trump will be able to stay in power. And so you would think, is that the end of this conspiracy totalist belief? I don't think so. I, I go back to something that I, I think we should do a whole episode on eventually. There was a group of apocalyptic Christians called the Millerites, who back in the 19th century were following a preacher named Miller, and he picked a specific day for the world to end. And of course, the world did not end on that day. Again, spoiler alert. Um, and then he called it again. He's like, no, I got the math wrong. It'll be this day. And then the, uh, still the, the world did not end. But we see this increasingly with totalist worldviews. There are always ways for that belief system to adjust and adapt and change and mutate to fit the current zeitgeist. And so I, I predict what we're going to see from Q now is that it's going to move away from Hillary Clinton. She's sort of old news at this point, and she's not that useful to this theory. I think increasingly it'll become focused on this election and focused on the idea that Biden is a usurper who has basically caused a coup in the United States. Mm -hmm. I think you both are right to worry. And I think also I'm going to add even something sadder to the whole conversation it was oh, something that we brought up before right yeah yeah because it was sounded like it was it would maybe go getting to too happy now. yeah yeah so well one thing that we've brought up before is i wonder to what extent any of this has anything to do with reason i mean clearly the claims are not reasonable but i don't know if they're if 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 reasonable like now that say you know, the, you rightly point out that the predictions haven't come true I'm not sure it matters. I'm I really not, like I, I, like, I don't think it matters at all. This is not like, um, again, even like a more straightforward conspiracy where there's um, a set of right answers or a set of procedures you can employ to kind of get to the right answer. 
this is something bigger. And I think I've used this phrase a lot in, on the podcast. I, I think this is much more about this kind of, it's more important to belong than to be right. Mm -hmm. What this is offering is an alternative description of what's going on. One of the, um, I think, salient themes of this is what is happening to you is not fair mm -hmm. and it's not your fault. And I think that's what is very, uh, and in a lot of this stuff, what is very compelling. You look at sort of, you look at how the protocols of the elders of Zion uh, was used in Nazi Germany to basically blame Jews for the economic collapse that Germany had gone through after the First World War, blame Jews for the fact that they lost the war, that Germany lost the war, that was, you know, through some amazing leaps of uh, incoherent reasoning uh, blamed on a small group of Germans who themselves have been part of the war, had been fighting, you know, very patriotically. And this whole myth was generated. And I, the question for me is not that somebody generates a myth. That's a dime a dozen. Yeah. What is interesting Humans is are, why does are this, always making myths. Yeah. Why, why does this myth catch on at this time? And I think it's when you have something like an earth shattering event, the loss of a massive war, plus the loss of the entire middle class's economy, it then an ideology that then says, oh yeah, this actually has nothing to do with our politics. It has nothing to do with you, your class position, uh, anything like that. It was them over there, whoever that group you know, is identified, whatever scapegoat is identified. That I think is a very soothing narrative. And if it, it causes you to accept a few unreasonable premises along the way, then so much the better. What I, what I think, so I think that it will account for its tenacity to some extent and why I don't, why I think it's completely impervious to people like us saying, you know, this doesn't make sense or this historical precedent. I don't think it's going to go away at all because the underlying conditions that make this narrative appealing, uh, which could be various, I don't think those conditions are going away with the election of Biden or with, with anything that's gonna happen in American politics over the next five, 10, 20 years. There are moments in history that are similar to other moments. And what you are seeing today reminds me, even though I'm not saying it's the same thing, nor am I suggesting that the end outcome is the same thing, but it does remind me of the kind of stuff that was happening in Germany in the 20s, when there was massive financial, political, collapses as well as collapses in legitimacy and people are really wondering how do I get through this what you discover at that time is the belief in in these kinds of conspiracies but more importantly and this was my long-winded way of getting here it's cynical use by people in power right. and you could see it also with Trump I don't know I personally don't think that Trump himself believes any of this stuff but he was very happy to use their slogans, to uh, talk about them as quote unquote good people and other people in positions of power will use ideologies that are out there in order to motivate people to do what they want, uh, even if they themselves don't believe it. And this starts this kind of feedback loop where now it seems legitimate to have these opinions because, hey, look, these people in power there like, yeah, yeah, this stuff is legit, or you guys are good, you guys are onto something, you know, keep going, whatever, whatever. That's where I get really worried. 
I'm starting to see now a kind of official recognition of stuff that is, I thought was so fringe, right? I thought was like, and this is very ungenerous of me to put it like this, but I think that in any community, you're going to get a very small segment of people who are going to believe something really absurd. And I just take that as sort of a statistical thing. But once it gets big, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm really shocked that we're getting official take up of these ideas. It's a pandemic. And the other aspect of it is like, there are, there are parts of this, like what people who believe in Q, what they're feeling is justified to a large degree because like the world is a crooked game. There are elites who have far too much power. There are even elites with islands where human trafficking is going on. Like all of this is true. The problem is that what Q provides is this sort of solution where, well, if we just get rid of these bad people, then everything will be great forever. Whereas the truth is there are these really complex structural reasons why these horrors are happening. And because we participate in those structures to a degree, it's partly our fault. It's all of our fault. That's why we love the scapegoat because the scapegoat allows us to say, wait, it is none of my fault. These bad things that are happening are all the fault of this group. Let's get them. And anytime humans have pulled off something like really horrifying, the genocides that humans are so good at and pull off every once in a while, I don't think there's been a genocide that wasn't preceded with like a heavy dose of scapegoating and conspiracy theorizing. And that's why I am genuinely, absolutely as worried as you guys are. Well, maybe we should end on a high note somehow. If you are listening and you have a loved one who you feel like has been infected by this, what should you do? Well, it doesn't help to mock them or make fun of their views. That's definitely going to further alienate them and shut down any chance of discussion because their defenses will be up. So I would not recommend that. No, nobody's ever been mocked into changing their mind. No. It just causes them to dig their heels in more. It just causes them to become more isolated and alienated. And that's like the fertile soil where this grows. I'm really throwing a lot of metaphors around. It's a plant, it's a disease, whatever it what takes you, to get through the sentence. What do you do, Nathan, when you have a student who comes to you with these kinds of beliefs? First thing is listen to the person. Listen to the person, find common ground with the person. And there will be common ground. If you talk to a QAnon supporter and they'll say something like, I think child abuse is a problem, you can say, agreed. Child abuse is something that absolutely <laughs> needs to be addressed. Yeah. If they say something like, I, I think that the elites are basically living in a different world than us. You could say, yeah, that's completely like that. You could be totally sympathetic to that point of view. There are massive structural inequalities in our society. And so you start with those sort of common ground places. And then hopefully you can build something from there. The other thing that I would say for the specific views of QAnon is one of the most helpful things you can do. You can't tell anybody anything. But what you can do is you can help them to realize something. And the most powerful tool we have in our arsenal is listening and asking good questions. Even a question as simple as something like, okay, so how many Q predictions never came true? Because the answer is going to be almost all of them. It's going to be a huge list. And then you could follow up that question with like, okay, well, so then why do you think the Q is reliable? If, if somebody is wrong this often, why are you listening to them? Like if we, that kind of gentle questioning can be extremely helpful because it's a conversation. 
and it's bringing the person mm -hmm. in because we do so badly in isolation. And so to further isolate somebody, it's just going to make them more vulnerable. I, I would add to that, which I think you both have brought up some really important points. I would add to that though, that I think it doesn't matter how far along this person is, uh, just in case the things that we've suggested don't end up working out, don't despair because it's probably the fact that this person has already become so embedded in this community that just one naysayer, as friendly and as empathetic as they might be, might not be enough anymore. One of the advantages, the strategic advantages that the three of us have is we often encounter people at the beginning of their journey into this kind of conspiracy theory. And somebody just starting out is much easier to reach than somebody who is really committed to that ideology. Uh, so that, that, that matters. And if you can reach somebody early, it'll be easier. Yeah, that too. Like our mantra has always been for every conspiracy we've come across, some of them have been true, some of them have been false, some of them have been deliberately weaponized. But our mantra has always been like, show us the receipts. What is the evidence? And that has to continue to be the way we navigate through the current virtual ecology. What is the evidence? And just be like, be as evidence-based as possible, not rumors and innuendo and all these other things and secret codes. Like gut what is feelings. The yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I got to say, this is, I mean, a lot of our episodes are depressing, but this one really really hits me a different way. <laughs> uh, me too. It's a clear yeah. and present threat. Yeah, it is. Well, we haven't done anything. You're on social media. You've come across, you've lost people to this. I've lost people to this, yeah. And I have another friend who's like interested in, a, in kind of a curious way and she'll, she'll laugh some stuff off, but she'll send me some things that are quite bizarre. Just as a just to send them to me for my interest, but um, yeah, it's scary to see how, like Lee was saying, how mainstream some of these very absurd things have become, and it is, it's really scary. I'm, One of the yeah. things the internet has done is there is no fringe now. So then, how do we wrap it up? <laughs> if you have evidence that anything that Q has said is true, please yeah. send it to us. Yeah, send it to us because I'm willing to change my mind if I get evidence. Yeah. Send it to us at. Podcast at theuncoverup.com. Nailed it. This station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcasting system.